Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the House of the Hinky Built podcast. Today is a little different. We're taking a break from the player reviews. We'll be back later in the week. Um, but today I have I am joined by Jake Fisher, um, who is a writer at Bleacher Report. He's been in a lot of different places, um, but he, uh, he, recently, he recently published a book uh, called Built to Lose. Uh, I believe did I? I hope I did not butcher that. I had that right. Um, there's all these different books going out these days uh, about different things related to uh, really about the NBA and team building and whatnot. But uh, Jake is here today, uh, so we'll discuss that. We'll talk a little bit about the inspiration behind it, how Jake got involved in writing in the first place, uh, and the NBA specifically, kind of the challenges and, and what he learned from that experience. Uh, so it should be fun today. But uh, Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for the nice introduction and uh, for having me. And excited to. Know, delve into a subject matter that are, I think we're both pretty close to. So, yeah, uh, do the bare minimum there, not bot, not not bot, not butchering the name of your uh, your book there. Um, <laughs> but I, I was curious before we kind of get into the specific some of the process of that and kind of compiling information and writing it. What's what's your background as a journalist, as an MBA consumer? How did you kind of enter those spheres initially to where you get to the point where you're writing a a big book that entails both of those those industries and worlds? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the long story short, the stump speech is that I definitely played pretty competitively growing up, still play now a bunch. Basketball's always been you know, my sport. Um, but you know, at a certain point, I realized I wasn't making the league. <laughs> so I, I was lucky that my high school, Cherry Hill East, um, it's still ongoing to this day best paper year over year in New Jersey. Like it just gets awarded. The advisor, Greg Gagliardi, is just a legend. And um he's one of the two teachers I, I dedicated the book to. Um, so from there, you know, I just, I guess there's something I always wanted to do when I kind of hit the ground running interning for the Huffington Post. And then I got my start interning at, really at Slam Magazine that 2013 summer when, you know, all these executives were being hired that are covered in the book. Sam Hinkie in Philly, you know, obviously is the poster child of, um, you know, the tanking era, if you will. But, you know, Ryan McDonough came to power in Phoenix too. And Ryan, uh, Rob Hennigan was hired in Orlando a year before. And that same summer, Pete Alessandro gets up in Sacramento and David Griffin comes to power not too long after in, in uh, Cleveland. So I felt like I was coming into the league at the same time period that this storyline was talking about. So I just kind of wanted to, you know, from there at Slam is where I kind of made my bones and I was part of the process up up and close, you know, covering it at Liberty Ballers, which, you know, obviously been a great breeding ground for a lot of writers, you know, covering that team for that specific website. And then from there I got to SI. I was at Sports Illustrated for about four years before I was part of the crazy layoffs in 2019 that put me on this more independent path now. Unfortunately, I do some stuff on the side with Bleach Report. Um, so that's kind of my my background and my spiel onto to who I am and why I wanted to write the book. Yeah, we'll get into more of the book specifically here, but I, I liked in your kind of your intro about the book, how how you framed it and described it as such a casual scene where, you know, like everyone can go up to everyone, right? You can just, you can, you can stumble across some guy who's maybe going to win summer league MVP and then rookie of the year and be a, a four-time all-star by their fifth season. And you'll, you'll be talking with maybe a guy who's going to win executive of the year in a couple of years because they, they, you know, engineer some masterful trade or, I think you talked about like you like at one point you were on TV or something like you were in the background of. So yeah. I liked how you really phrased and not really phrased, but just painted that picture. Like even though there are no pictures in that, for, like I could really, I have, I've I've watched Orlando summer league, so I can kind of see how I, I knew the casual nature of it to an extent. But I 
but I mean, just, just kind of getting that mental image was, was really cool there. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned kind of, you know, Hinky is kind of the poster child for this, this sort of idea behind team building or, you know, building a championship caliber team. Um, but what, what was your inspiration for the story? When did it kind of click for you that you be like, Oh, this is, this is like, I have all this information that I could put together to, to put into a 300 page book and, you know, actually yeah. make it a really intriguing for, for a large audience. Yeah, well, I think kind of to your point, what you just said before about, you know, the intro starts with me detailing, you know, being on the ground in Orlando, like you mentioned, just kind of walking in like a 19 year old kid who shouldn't have been there, but was. And I think that was just kind of, you know, I set the tone of the fact that I've come to learn. And I think that's the most important lesson I've learned throughout my career. And the thing that I think fans don't really grasp still is that the NBA really just is a business and an ecosystem and a marketplace with all these people who were just like you and I, they went to high school and played basketball one day and dreamed about being in the NBA too. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to not lose sight of that and to consider that, you know, I, I talked to over 300 people for this book and I talked to, you know, dozens of NBA people every week, you know, everyone, players, agents, coaches, executives, they all have their independent individual agendas even though they're all part of the same team, the executives trying to keep convincing ownership. He's the guy to run the ship. And, you know, he hires the coach who's keep trying to do stuff to, you know, keep his job and players are all trying to get paid and the agents are trying to put their players in the best situation to play to then get paid too. So I think, you know, the book, I really wanted to show the human aspect and the day to day and the behind the scenes of what, you know, quote unquote team building really is because it's not just putting together, you know, a fake trade on trade machine and hoping, you know, that these teams maximize those players. It's, it's really considering the fact that every NBA team is an organization with, you know, office culture and politics, just like any place you've worked too. So that, that was really one of the main goals too, was to, was to try to streamline that conversation and to try to really peel back the curtain as to who these people are and how the NBA functions on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I like what you said about people trying to, you know, pitch that this is the guy, like this is why they should continue to run things a certain way. Like, I think most NBA fans realize the NBA is a business and that's why decisions are made in a certain way. But at the same time, like that means every single decision and, you know, day is scrutinized by the, you know, by the owners, the people who make all these lead decisions and are in charge of people, you know, continuing to, to hold a certain position, um, which is really interesting to me. But another thing you mentioned, there's 300 different people, over 300 people you talk to. Like I know when I've written pretty extensive stories, although there's nothing to the level of a, a 300 page book, I've, I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but I've felt like I have to be very on top of things in terms of organizing interviews and, and quotes and sources. So what was the process there? How did you make sure that you didn't ever kind of get yeah. everything knotted together and, and whatnot? How did you organize all, all of those these different people you were talking with and, and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, for this book, I thought it was pretty simple, even though it was like hard work and complicated, but on its face, it was pretty much, I mean, I, I basically looked at this story through the lens of six teams primarily, Philly, Boston, LA, and then secondarily, we have Orlando, Phoenix, and Sacramento. So, you know, it's a three-year period pretty much where it's that 2013 season where everyone is tanking for that 2014 class, right? That's kind of why this book exists. All these analytical executives came to power while the Miami Heat were running the league and OKC had just tanked and drafted KD, Russ, and Harden three straight years and made the finals in 2012. Everyone thought, well, this 14 class is the next version of 2003. Let's just get these guys. (laughs) And, you know, obviously that's not 
um, what happened for a lot of teams. But, you know, so basically it was kind of chronological and, you know, basically did everything from look at basketball reference, real GM, whatever, list the entire roster for all those six teams from 2013 to 2016. And, um, you know, they had to get in contact with them and, and the overarching storylines that you want to touch on and, you know, keep updating that, that interview topic list when you get Nick Staskis on the phone and he tells some great story about how TJ McConnell came up to him after his first practice one day and was like, do you think I'm going to make the team? And then you bring that up to TJ McConnell and he says, yeah, I was asking everybody that. So then every time you get somebody else on the phone, you ask them for their TJ McConnell coming up to you asking about, you know, his situation story. So um, I'm I'm definitely a Google Doc person. I like to be able to look at this top of my phone as like I'm taking a walk or commuting somewhere in the subway. Um, And, you know, for that, it was very simple to just break it down by year, by team, by subject. And with like a little asterisk to the left. So, you know, you do a control F type in the asterisk and it's very easy to jump through the document. And honestly, you know, you try to, I I try to operate with the rule of thirds. Like if I want to talk to 50 people for something, you know, I probably have to reach out to 150 um, to actually get them. So you're going to, I expect a lot of no's, but I try to cast as wide a net as possible to that way, get as thorough and, and detailed a story as I can. Yeah, Control F is, has become my best friend uh, as I've become a writer the last five or six years here. But uh, yeah, the whole thing about you talk to one person, hear a storyline, and then all of a sudden you've got 14, 14 different people to talk about the same event. I've, I've been through that through that um, on a smaller scale, but again, not to the 300 level of, of people. But yeah, it's just that's just how storytelling works, right? Like you just want all these different perspectives. And sometimes you get you get half a sentence from someone in terms of like what you put, what you put out in your final result, even though you talk to that person for an hour right. and a half. And, uh, and, and, but sometimes they just give you a lot of background information that helps you lead you in different directions. So yeah. uh, d- definitely have been there, uh, of course, but I think that's just, I mean, just organization, how you, how you go about that is fascinating. Um, I, mean, I like waited out Rajon Rondo one time. He was with the Lakers, I think. It was right before the pandemic. And I just wanted to get something about his relationship with Brad Stevens and as he's walking out, I was like, hey, Rajon, can I ask you one question? He was like, yeah, one. What do you got? <laughs> I, I pitched him something on Brad and he gave me some small detail and it made it in the book. But like, you know, it was, it was at least, you know, if, it's, if I get one paragraph out of something, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not something small. You know, it's just, it's just about compiling different paragraphs on top of each other until you have a whole breathing thing. Yeah, exactly. You never know what sort of detail the, the reader or the viewer is going to latch on to that, that tells them, hey, like you should go read this article or you should go, you should go buy this book or whatever, or download this book. And, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, details are so key. It's finding a balance, of course, with that stuff. But looking in, I always just find myself so interested from a reading perspective on the details of it, um, too. But, but I'm, I'm wondering, was there a moment for you, like when, when you were getting, like when you're kind of going through these experiences where at first you're kind of like, like, oh, that's be kind of an interesting thing to maybe put together eventually versus when did it come together? Where, like, I actually could, you know, turn this into a book versus maybe just an article. Like what, what was yeah. the process there of actually having this come to fruition for you versus just being an idea? Yeah. Well, I remember being at the lottery party in 2014 through LB and the right Ricky Sanchez and, and realizing that right, right then and there, like this was a moment, like I'd been, 
pretty much a diehard Philly fan my whole life. And then, you know, eventually I still am with the Eagles eventually with my career. You know, I don't care about the Sixers at all. It just, it just is what it is. Like I was a little bit bummed out that they lost to hurt with book sales. Um, but like, I remember, you know, this will probably ring a bell with some of your listeners. Like I was at the 2015 draft with, uh, Jake Pavorsky, and when they picked Joel Okafor, he was like demoralized about it. And I was just like, eh, you know, best player available, right? Like that's the strategy. So that's kind of the moment I realized I was like truly an objective fan. But a year before that, I recognized that like this was not just like teams supporting or fans supporting their team. And like, you know, Boston, everyone re- revered Danny Ainge for a while, but it was a different flavor with Hanky and it was a real moment and you know from there it was something that I thought at the time might be like an espionation long-form story or something like that like that was right around then when like internet journalism was really blooming and like I really wanted a quote-unquote long-form story so I thought that was going to be that and I just kind of kept the idea in my mind for a while and then you know the book concept started to be like a thought child probably after Sam um resigned I remember meeting with him at a certain point at summer league and like kind of pitching him on doing it and him saying no but you know someone will write it and like it might as well be you so you know I started then thinking about how it can be more of a bigger idea as well and and I really did realize you know like we talked about it wasn't just Sam it was it really was a trend around the entire league and I think you know that tanking era, those, those executives really talking about team building strategy to people like you and I, and talking about it more in press conferences has really not just, I don't think it really just changed the way the lottery form works now and how the league is trying to put in play in tournaments and mid season tournaments and all that. I think, you know, that time period really reflected on, on how we talk about decision-making at such a, you know, nitty-gritty detail level now. And, you know, you can go to any bar in any city and they'll be talking about the salary cap and someone bird rights and all type of stuff. Like, I don't think that was being discussed, you know, a decade or so ago. I really do think um, as that groundswell has been happening and as this conversation has continued to become more and more nerdy about sports, like I thought – you know, this is, this is definitely a book. Like this is something that I can further more and find out more details and use my contacts at this point. I've been covering the league for eight years. Like I'm pretty much a phone call away from most people in the in and around the NBA. So the time might as well be now. Yeah. It's, I liked how you, you kind of talked about how this thing reshaped general discourse, not just within front offices, but with fans and people who cover the league, like the, the, the minutia of it, you know, I was someone who's covered the Sixers now for, three or four years to some, some depth, um, the degree to which they, like those fans specifically talk about like hitting on the margins, which is something Hinky did quite well, whether it was, you know, you know, signing, like, uncovering guys like Robert Covington, TJ McConnell, even Jeremy Grant, um, you know, guys like that, where, you know, whereas in the posting here for a while, there was an absence of that for the Sixers, right? And that's what a lot of fans talked about. It was missing on those moves. Obviously they had Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and then Jimmy Butler for a minute, Tobias Harris came into the fold. So they had kind of the bigger moves there, but like, I, I, I would have wondered, because for me, it's one of those things where I kind of, I kind of started covering the league. I was always, I've been a fan since I was young, but I was, I kind of entered the journalism side of things right 
after Hinkie's tenure. I think I started covering the Sixers in some capacity during the Fultz year, so 2017. Um, but I but I would have wondered, like, I would have been cool. To, I mean, obviously, you have that juxtaposition, but I, I do notice that a lot more. It does seem like it's like the idea of hitting the margins and, and how important the cap flexibility and, and avenues to maybe, you know, circumventing little cap cap things and whatnot. So that's, that's interesting too, that, you know, just that point there. Um, what, uh, you know, maybe shifting gears a little bit, what do you feel like you, you kind of learned about, you know, either yourself, your, your storytelling, the league kind of throughout this project. I mean, it seems like it goes back about four and a half, five years in terms of when you, you kind of wanted this thing to, to come to fruition. Yeah. What have you kind of, I guess maybe start with what did you learn about the league more so that you didn't know? And obviously something that just comes with getting older and coming like about the league and then also just about storytelling in, in general over this process. Yeah. I, th- I think the point I mentioned at the beginning about how, you know, these are a just people, but that also means, you know, there's the human element really, really intertwined throughout everything in, in this league, especially I think in all pro sports, but the NBA in particular and, and the fact that now, you know, we're, we're in such a player empowerment, superstar driven league where, you know, we see this, this trend this summer where all the, pretty much every coach hired is either a former player or someone who's been considered to, you know, really relate well to players. And, and I, I don't think that tanking um, isn't a part of it. Like, I, I don't I don't see how Philly, for example, saying to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, obviously a little bit of a touchy subject right now, but telling <laughs> those two guys basically like we're willing to be bad for years with the chance of, I mean, I think that was what, what set uh, Sam apart from everybody else is that um, he was open to the fact that, you know, we're going to miss, we're going to miss on MCW and Nerlens and job, but we want to collect as many darts to throw at the dartboard. That way we, if we do hit on two, you know, we're still doing pretty damn well. And I don't understand how that didn't play a factor in, in player empowerment, right? Like that just, you know, I, I think a lot of executives I talked to and I have some people on the record in the book agreeing with me that like that play, that wasn't uh, that was an unexpected ripple effect from this. And I think, it's still like look at Atlanta with Trey Young. Like that is unequivocally Trey Young's team, and it's going to be unequivocally Trey Young's team because he was drafted to be the guy. And they were sacrificing years to get him and then get talent around him to have him lead them to where they are right now. So I think that's another aspect of this that I wasn't expecting going into it. And I think, you know, it probably needs to get a little bit more attention in this player empowerment discussion that, you know, is, is certainly being had, you know, pretty consistently today. Yeah, I think the Trey Young example specifically is pretty is pretty salient because, you know, I think last year there were reports that, like, he was growing a little wary of losing in year two. And, and obviously there was some emphasis, I think, from him to, you know, for to enter kind of a win now mindset. And obviously they did, and they got two wins from the finals. And there's a ton more talent on that team this year compared to last year. And even though Trey is roughly the same player, the narrative around him has exponentially grown positive compared to last year where he had the, you know, the misguided empty stats narrative. And he's, I mean, largely the same player he's been the last couple of years, even the last two and a half years. So yeah, I think that that totally makes sense. Um, I mean, I just, just, I mean, you know, people talk about this kind of being the player empowerment era. And I, I think, I think the superstar part of that is really key because I think, I think we're still a little bit of a ways off from like every you know notable NBA player who is a rotation guy really having the power. But I think we're absolutely in a place where 
any all-star type player, anyone who's up for an all NBA bid has so much influence over a front office's decision-making. I mean, you mentioned the, the coaching part of it. I mean, there's been what three or four coaching vacancies filled now. And I think the the guys, the teams that have superstars have been linked in some way to kind of at least approve of those hires, whether it's Damian Lillard in Portland or it's, or it's, you know, Jason Tatum in in Boston and Jalen Brown, I think was linked to, you know, supporting the Doka's hire as well. So um, I might, might, might be missing some some teams that have been mentioned there um, or superstars have been linked to their, their team's new hires. But those two come to mind for sure because there was a lot of scrutiny and, and whatnot with, with Damian Lillard revolving around John T. Phillips, you know, um, higher and, and even Jason Kidd's, you know, link, linkage to, to Portland and, and Lillard's, you know, uh, support for him. So, uh, yeah, I think this those things come to mind for sure too, whether it's the Trey Young roster building or the coaching hire with guys like Tatum and, and Dame and the influence they wield over those, those decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we're never going to see the point where Garrett Temple <laughs> has, you know, say over what is happening. You know, there, there's a point where, you know, I have this detail in the book where someone like Luka Mbamute, the Milwaukee Bucks are using him to get in touch with Joel Embiid and around the 2014 draft because he was refusing to work out for anybody below Cleveland. And they used that connection, you know, Luke Gumbamute, for those who don't know at this point, like discovered Joel at some camp in Cameron, like, sure. He's going to be able to get Milwaukee to dinner with Joel in LA. But other than that, I mean, the league is about compiling these all-stars together right now. I, I mean, it just, it just is what it is. Like, I think the summer of 2019 blew that open and, and really, you know, opened Pandora's box. And then you see James Harden just straight up says, I want to go to Brooklyn. And, you know, there's a lot of complicating factors that led him there, but like he ended up in Brooklyn. Right. So I think, you know, that just, I mean, Brett Brown, I remember the, the, the star chasing quote he gave that summer 2019 has been stuck in my brain forever too. Like we're at the point of no return now where I think, you know, that's why tanking started. It was all these analytical guys like Sam stemming from Daryl and others like showing that like empirically and it's anecdotally too, but NBA champions are built on the backs of multiple all-stars and teams are just trying more and more than ever before and more brazenly and, you know, less um, quietly chasing these guys and trying to put them together more and more too. So I think this is all just kind of a ripple effect of all these you know, compounding factors happening at the same exact time. Yeah. The all-star point I think is, is really important too, because I think the, you know, we mentioned the Hawks here, the Hawks are, you know, maybe that's still that one player away, but they've drafted so well and signed so many good players over the last few years. Um, but then maybe they can, you know, consolidate some of those guys in the next couple of years to, to give Trey a co-star and like that. And, and whatnot. And yeah, I think, you know, I think back maybe to that, one that. player is DeAndre Hunter, who they also tanked and traded up in the draft and got yeah. him, for, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, you mentioned kind of the Brett Brown star hunting quote. I mean, that's like kind of one of the iconic, iconic quotes of, of Brett. I mean, Brett was such a colorful guy with media um, and There's whatnot, but yeah, I remember that. In the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm also wondering, you know, because you went met with so many people, such a, a long drawn out process to putting this thing together and finally getting it out on shelves and whatnot. Yeah. Did your expectations or focus or themes of the book kind of evolve over this, you know, half decade process? And, and how did you kind of, if so, like, how did you kind of adapt to those, those changes and whatnot throughout your, I guess, your information, your kind of compiling of information throughout the years? Yeah, I think, you know, I, 
a big thing I remember we talked about a lot at Liberty Ballers during the process years was, you know, this was being so discussed and litigated and whatever all across the country when like people weren't considering the fact that a lot of fans were just on board and same with ownership thinking that you know, this is just a good change of pace from being the eight seed for five straight years. Right. So I wanted to take that lens and provide all the necessary context around the other situations too, because there's different paths that lead you to tanking and rebuilding. And those different paths also, I think, end up playing a big factor in how you proceed from there. Right. So I wanted to include the necessary context, but also you can't write a 600 page book with all the necessary context. Right. So <laughs> that was difficult to navigate too, but I, I really wanted to get inside Boston with, you know, starting trading K, KG and Paul Pierce is a much, you know, more, um, you know, it's a lot more firepower to kick off your rebuild than trading Drew Holiday, who was a 22-year-old one-time All-Star who obviously is still kicking in the finals right now, but was not considered a player, obviously, at the time who was worth three first-round picks. He was like a nice young piece. You know, a lot of people were questioning if he even was a, a true All-Star that year. And you go from that to compare to Brooklyn or, or Boston, like, no no wonder they got those, those picks that turned into Tatum and Jalen Brown. Like, they had a much easier starting route where you compare that to the Lakers who, you know, they refused to move on from Kobe probably to a fault. And that's why they ended up being the worst team in this time period from 2020, from 2012, to 2017, the Lakers were the worst team in the entire NBA, but they weren't intentionally tanking at all and potentially be partially because they were trying to uphold this, you know, we have Kobe, there's going to be a star that joins him and then it's going to be a star that joins that star and I think that's why another factor why tanking even exists in the first place being that most teams are not the Lakers, right? They need to, you know, they can't just rest in their loyals and expect guys to join them in free agency. They need to get these guys in the draft primarily. And then hopefully if you're like Phoenix, you'll get Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and you'll be able to draw the attention of someone like Chris Paul. So I think, you know, providing that context was something that I really struggled with to be like, I started off the book writing in like 2007 about the lottery with Kevin Durant and Greg Oden. Like that's where I thought maybe even, you know, the story even started and even like the Chris Paul stuff to, to the Lakers back with the New Orleans trade with David Stern. Like at a, at a certain point, you know, you have to cut it down and really condense it and try to find those through lines. So that, that was probably, um, uh, that's my long rambling answer to your question. <laughs> It's like a, someone who's been a podcast guest on many times and rambled uh, all the time. I told, I'm more rambling the better, honestly. It's totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the Lakers thing is interesting because, you know, they, they, you know, if we're comparing it, you know, let's we're taking these three big markets, Philadelphia, Boston, and LA, and all of them were, you know, teams that, you know, have won at least a series in the last couple of years, like at least one series, obviously the Lakers and Celtics not do that this year, but a lot of injuries involved there. Um but the Celtics and Sixers are the the main reasons they've won are because of their the guys they got through the draft, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. Whereas the Lakers, they drafted some pretty interesting guys who are no longer there, whether it's all-stars, Brandon Ingram, Julius Randle, D'Angelo Russell. Um, but the but the I mean, the reason they're good is because they because of kind of their history with Kobe showing that allegiance to him. You know, LeBron wanted to go back there and because he liked kind of the, the way that they've empowered stars throughout the years and he got Anthony Davis to come. So I'm, I'm curious kind of about this Lakers angle a little more like what 
what did you learn about that side of things? Because they they have drafted pretty well. They even have guys like Larry Nance, Jordan Clarkson, like yeah. a lot of a lot of very good players for key teams. I mean, Nance hasn't been on a key team for a couple of years now, but was I think yeah. was on one of the LeBron Finals teams. Like, what did you learn about that side of it? Because they they're really good again, but it didn't didn't come in the same way that like it was young cornerstone players to the draft as, as the Sixers and Celtics have returned to prominence after some down seasons. Yeah, well, the Lakers had a chance at getting LeBron and Carmelo back in 2014. They just they gave Kobe that godfather golden parachute contract <laughs> at November, which, you know, to go back to the cap conversation we we're talking about earlier, the Lakers just wait to give Kobe that deal and they keep their books clean. You know, then they can sign Kobe after they sign two max free agents. They can go over the over the cap into the luxury tax to do that. They shot themselves in the foot. So right, right then and there, I mean, I think that was kind of pretty emblematic of how the Lakers kind of acted a bit with hubris, thinking like, we're the Lakers. We're going to sign these stars. We have Kobe. People want to play with Kobe. We went from, you know, Kobe and Shaq to Kobe and Powell to Kobe and Dwight. And now we're just going to get the next guy. And, and was that was that a was that all that, like the Lakers wanted to reward him immediately or was there any sort of was Kobe at all someone like someone who wanted to kind of get that money and kind of re, be rewarded for his investment to the team or was that only a Kobe or was that only an organizational type decision like what was the relationship there because there's it's interesting right like there's how that goes down because I'm sure if Kobe wanted to get paid he could have he could have called the shots there to an extent yeah I mean he definitely wanted to get paid I mean they're mm-hmm. they're I didn't talk to Kobe and I didn't talk to Rob Palenka, but I mean, by all accounts, he definitely wanted to uphold his standing of being the highest paid player in the league. And he even took a discount quote unquote, which dropped him from being the highest player in the league to the highest player in the league. So he definitely gave a little bit back in that regard, but that was important to him. And I think like you mentioned a little while back, it was all, it was important for the Lakers to show how they treat their stars. And, and just like you said, they wanted to broadcast it to other stars. Like, if you come here, this is how we're going to treat you too. And it didn't work for years. I mean, they not them not getting a meeting with Kevin Durant was honestly like the like the earth an earth shattering moment. I mean, even even when Dwight left in 2013 to go sign with the Rockets, that was a moment where a lot of Lakers officials looked themselves in the mirror, were like, "Are we just not?" the Lakers anymore like that we lost the shine but and they go back and to try to do it in 2014 with Carmelo and LeBron and then again in 2015 with the Marcus um but I guess to their credit like Jim Buss and Mitch Kupchak you know they kind of were right because LeBron just came in 2018 anyway and you know maybe that was unique circumstances you know obviously LeBron's got business interests that you know, far expand beyond basketball to the point that I don't think other players really even fathom how much, you know, Kevin Durant's got his boardroom and everyone else, you know, James Harden's now on the board of Saks Avenue, but LeBron, I think is, is a different, you know, stratosphere than those guys. And I think, you know, maybe the Lakers got lucky that LA was the opportunity for him to really, you know, plant his flag into the, the media space as well. But I think it also is the Lakers, right? And, and and he wanted to come to be the next great guy in the next line of that 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 franchise lore. So I think that was something that maybe ran, made all those moves, you know, ring true and, and, and in hindsight made them look better. But in, in the interim, I mean, they had a 37-year-old Kobe Bryant who was getting hurt and getting hurt and getting hurt. And they just kept signing guys to one-year deals thinking that A, it would motivate those players to play in a contract year and B, they'd keep their books open to sign the other free agent again every summer and they kept striking out. So I can't give them too much credit, but obviously, you know, 
what they did and how they behaved did did attract LeBron for sure. Yeah, the the whole Lakers LeBron thing is such a, a delicate subject to you know parse through because yes, of course they made some ill advised decisions for a few years there, but at the same time, as I said, as we've said, there is kind of part of the idea that they treat their superstars well, and that's part and like people want to go to a team that has a history of that, and at the same time, they're the Lakers because they have made a lot of great decisions throughout the years and gotten superstars and won titles. So um, continuing kind of off of that, when you talk with other people around the league about kind of the Lakers, you know, inability to build, build a better team through the draft, despite having, you know, a number of, you know, interesting young guys, a couple and the, what, two top three picks there in a, in a pretty quick span, whether it was three straight number two picks. Yeah, exactly. So what, in, in a big market too, where like they maybe they could entice some win now guys to come around these these younger players who had talent. How did maybe the Lakers' inability to you know rebuild through the draft did that at all affect kind of teams around the league at all? Did that dissuade them from this this model? What was that kind of impact like? As because the Lakers did struggle to yeah. you know kind of build this through this model. I think they're just an example of how you know, everyone wants to ask me all the time now, did the process work? And, you know, that's literally to relitigate that unless you want to. But to me, it's like, you know, the reason it's called a process was because Hinky was so, whenever he did talk publicly, he was keen on messaging, you know, process over results, right? And I think part of that was because so much that happens in team building is out of your control. There's injuries involved. There's like Joel Embiid getting hurt before that draft is the only reason he's in Philadelphia today. If he, mm-hmm. if he doesn't break his foot, which I have from Cavs officials, they believe he broke it during his, during his pre-draft workout with Cleveland. He's in Cleveland right now. And I don't think the Cavs trade for Kevin Love. I think it's LeBron, Joel Embiid and Kyrie Irving winning titles for a couple of years. Like, that's a whole different, you know, alternative. Right. So I think with the Lakers, like a lot of people were making fun of them at the time for in the NBA for trying to be good and failing miserably and the Lakers you know there's lit the Lakers exceptionalism we just talked about is mocked around the league when they're not doing well when they are doing well everyone's like of course it's the Lakers what do you expect like they're just going to sign these guys and you know they their inadvertent tanking their their stumbling on the standings ended up getting them the draft package that they were able to use to get Anthony Davis right so I think there's a little bit of jealousy rooted in that mockery, but at the time, um, you know, people, A, want the Lakers to be bad and struggle. People in the league, I'm saying, <laughs> rival teams. Um, and B, like when it does come to fruition and they are, you know, failing to put together a playoff team year after year after basically making it every year for 30, for 30 years, you know, I think their competitors were a little happy about that. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the thing. As we mentioned, kind of maybe some of the luck the Lakers received by you know having LeBron choose them in 2018 after some missteps. But the Sixers got lucky too because Joel Embiid broke his foot. Unfortunately, like they they would have had Andrew Wiggins. The Wiggins has turned into a, a fine NBA player, but but he's I mean Joel Embiid is a guy who just came off an MVP caliber season. It was also yeah. tremendous in the playoffs there. Um, and that that point is really interesting that you mentioned that you like you think they wouldn't have made the move for Kevin Love. Obviously, you know Embiid is a was a was thought, was thought of as a much higher caliber prospect than Wiggins, even though Wiggins was well regarded to an extent too. Um, but that's just an interesting, interesting point. And you know, mentioned mentioned the process. The way I kind of view it is, I think, I think Hinky like set the team up to be in a very good position. Um, and I like that's how I view it. Like I, I'm not going to be someone who like ever 
just like the process worked or it failed because it was it was incomplete. Like I think it it put them yeah. in a very good position. They had they had four high level starters. I mean, I know I know technically Hinky did not draft Ben Simmons, but he put together a roster that put them in position to have the number one pick, which is what Hinky wanted to do. He wanted to get more more bites at the apple. Um, and so, I mean, he was he was responsible for four starting level players, or maybe three and a half, with with Covington, Sarge, Covington, Sarge, and Beaton Simmons, and you know everything that happened after that wasn't it wasn't because of him. And so, yeah. it would have been interesting to see Hinky maybe see how he would approach the next step to actually you know turning everything he'd accumulated between picks and players into that. But that's where I'm kind of curious: what kind of gauge did you get from talking with him and people around him about how he approached the the next step of it, you know, going from, okay, we got all these good players and these picks that we can use. Like what was kind of the general sense about his plan to actually build a winning team rather than a team that could win in, in due time. For sure. I mean, I really think 2016 was the year they were planning on splurging for agency and trying to add pieces kind of similar to what Atlanta did this year. Um, and, you know, I think that's evidence in a couple of things It's evidence first in the fact that, with every single head coaching candidate that they were interviewing, which you know people may forget, that lasted until late August, and this was not in, in, in a regular year, not a COVID year, right? Where most most of these coaching hires are decided in you know late May, early June before the draft, and he continued to wait and wait and interview and interview, and eventually it comes to terms of Brett Brown. But Brett was the only guy that ownership was willing to offer a fourth year to, and he was. You know, if the Golden State Warriors had just basically maxed out with Mark Jackson and then they let go of Mark Jackson, Steve Kerr takes him to the title his very first year. Brett Brown did not want to be the Mark Jackson to some other guy, Steve Kerr. And he knew that that th- I think he knew from get that that third year was supposed to be the last year of this rebuild. And uh, because of that also, you know, I, I don't think people probably forget this too. Joel Embiid rebroke his foot a second time the week before the 2015 draft. And I think if he stays healthy, I think if he is projected to be that starting, that team starting center for the 15, 16 season, I don't think they take Jalil Okafor. I think a big portion of from what it was communicated to me from multiple people in that front office, I think a big part of that calculus was not just the fact that he was the best player available, quote unquote, who would have had the most, you know, retrade value, but he was someone that could potentially have made up for Joel busting the year before. And so with that also in mind, like they were making these hires on the coaching staff and the training staff to splurge in that 2016 free agency, like Chris Babcock, who's still an assistant with the team. He came over from with Brett Brown from from San Antonio, but he had a connection with Kevin Durant from Texas. And same with you know the strength coach Todd Wright, and they brought on Billy Lane, who knew Billy, who knew uh, Kyle Lowry, who was obviously going to be a free agent coming up again at that point too. And Lloyd Pierce had a connection to LeBron. Like they were doing those types of things, like the Knicks did with Royal Ivy, and the Nets do hiring Adam Harrington, Kevin Durant's former trainer, like. Henke was doing those types of big game behind the scenes, chasing stars moves all the way back then too. I think just the injury bug ended up ultimately, you know, changing that direction and made them tank one more year, which ultimately obviously helped push them out. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you think they might, they wouldn't have gone in the direction of Oka for there. Who were they eyeing? Or if you know it all, like what was, who were they maybe interested in if it wasn't going to be a big man there? Cause obviously Russell went second, they could have taken him who, who was kind of on their radar if it wasn't going to be Okafor's maybe kind of Embiid insurance for, for the time being? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely, obviously they moved on from Michael Carter-Williams, right? So there was a huge gap at point guard and they were looking at Emmanuel Moutier too. I remember there was real discussions. Obviously, he Moutier hasn't really worked out, but there were real discussions with their front office of like, who is really the top point guard prospect here? Is it D'Angelo or is it Emmanuel being that we saw with the Nick Young stuff and the Lakers? And I, uh, I, 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 I've come to like D'Angelo from our interactions that I've had with him in the years since, but there was a big notion of his immaturity. And that, that seemed to have reared its ugly head at, at least when he was a rookie with Los Angeles. So that was something that was really on their mind. I mean, they're looking at I mean, anyone who knows anything about Hankey's process years, and they, they would bring in over 150 people for their workouts, right? When most teams bring in 50 or 60. So they're looking at everybody. And he really did want to take a look at Chris Asperzingis. Um, you know, they definitely um, went on down the list of everybody. And I, I think Kristaps was a guy that maybe if Joel is healthy and he's someone that, you know, looks like is a player, you know, maybe they, they're, they're straight away from Kristaps too, being that, you know, there's another seven foot guy that maybe is blocking the path for a KP to play. But I think um, I'm blanking other people um, who are in that. I know Stanley Johnson was down that list that Devin Booker was way too low. Um, you know. like the Hazonia, the Kaminsky, Justice Winslow, yeah. Moody, Moody was seventh. And- yeah. I, I think Winslow maybe was someone that they probably would have given more attention to too. Um, I know that, um, I mean, obviously Sam Valley positional versatility and athleticism and especially defensive versatility. Um, and he was someone that, you know, got mentioned to me as even, you know, was on the radar, but I, I think they probably would have gone more if it went one, two ta- towns, D'Angelo, um, and they didn't have, and maybe they even like are taking jaw and fielding offers right away and making a trade down right on the draft night. That, that might even be the more accurate answer. Yeah, that, that's what I was curious about. Was there any kind of consideration or rumors or reports about maybe trading down? Because, I mean, they're just well, – I mean, the, the three guys that went after – the four guys that went after D'Lo were Okafor, Porzingis, Hazonia, Kali Stein. And those – I mean, Hazonia was kind of – was a wing, obviously. But that's basically three guys who also play center there. And MB was kind of your guy. So – was, was that something they can, that you heard at all that maybe considering them, them trading down to maybe in the mid-lottery, late lottery, trying maybe get a couple of couple of guys in that top 20 or so? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely hope that that Lakers pick was going to convey that year too, and it didn't. And I think, you know, with that, um, you know, there, there was definitely guys they were targeting later down in the lottery. Um, and I think, you know, it's funny that the first year Sam got pushed out, the Sixers make the infamous trade for Jason Tatum for Marco Fultz. Like that's the antithesis of what Sam thought of value, right? He never would have given up a future first round pick just to move up two slots. And that's what he did with Dario Saric and Orlando the year before, right? He, from all, by all accounts, he had info that Orlando wanted Alfred Payton and he took him at 10 knowing that the magic, <laughs> that, that, that Dario would be available at 12 and knowing that the magic wanted Alfred and knowing that, that, that the magic had a hold of one of Philly's picks. So yeah, I think if, if an opportunity presented itself, they definitely would have looked to recoup value. I mean, Sam traded back time and time again, not just in the first round. And he did it over and over and over again in the second round. So that would have absolutely been on the table and probably, and, and probably was, I, I don't know if any specifics are really being discussed at the time. Um, the only real 
effort that was being really rumored then, and I talked to a lot of people afterwards, was Danny Ainge's efforts to trade up for Justice Winslow. I mean, he called as high as uh, Detroit when they took Stanley Johnson to try to get, I think that was number seven, um, to try to get Justice, and he keeps falling, you know, obviously to where Miami gets him at 10. Um, that was really what everyone was talking about at the time. It was Danny Ainge trying to offer four first-round picks just to up and trade for Justice Winslow. Yes, yeah, so Stanley went eight, and uh, the Celtics did put it sixteen and took Terry Rozier. Um, and yeah, you mentioned the full stuff, and that's and that's what's so interesting is to me is that even like even I think he would have could have been over the moon for Fultz. It just went against what he like he he recognized that the draft was such a hard thing to evaluate. Even if he had confidence in his evaluations, he just wouldn't have risked that sort of he wouldn't have made that sort of risk. Like obviously, obviously there was stuff that happened about Fultz that contributed to him falling short of the number one pick expectations, but, but Sam just seemed to have this idea that, you know, those sort of things can happen. And so you don't want to risk, you know, making such a, such an important deal like that. And, and, and what I might as well just stay put, right. Is that, so is that kind of the idea that there's, is that kind of his philosophy to an extent? Like he just, even if he loved Fultz, he wouldn't have made that deal because it was just too risky in, in how the draft plays out year after year. And again, like we talked about earlier, he, he wanted to get as many darts proverbially to throw out that board, right? And I think trading down, like I remember, I believe it was the 2014 draft um, when the Sixers trade, they took Willie Hernan Gomez and just traded him to the Knicks. And there were a lot of players on the board that the Sixers scouting department wanted. And they wanted Norm Powell. That was one name that I remember the Sixers really, really wanted in that draft. And they were definitely disappointed that Sam took that opportunity to collect two future second round picks, but he was trying to, he was trying to look at every opportunity to trade, to sign a player, whatever, to maximize any, you know, function of the job of being president and general manager of an NBA team. He was trying to maximize that to ultimately, you know, put Philadelphia in a situation to compile as many contributing players as possible to put them you know, in the position to win a title year after year after year, not to win the title year after year, but to be in position to do so. So I think any opportunity to give yourself one more bite at that apple, one more swing at the plate, whatever metaphor you want to use, I think he would have taken. And he obviously, and, and he did, he showed that, like I said, training down from Alfred Payton, training down throughout that second round, turning, you know, the 39th pick or whatever it was in 2013 into two future firsts and or two future seconds and 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 two future picks in that draft that they are two more picks in that current draft that they used to get, you know, other players like that was the kind of thinking he was trying to do. He was I mean, I think he was just trying to take any any time he, he stepped up the plate and not just think, you know, I can hit, you know, left, right, or center. You know, I can use this and look at it from a 360 degrees and try to see where I can best put this ball to help my team. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that, I think that is just such an important, that's such an important thing to understanding how he operated. Um, like it just the idea that the draft is really hard and making decisions in the MPA is really hard as a lead. It's a front office guy and you want to give yourself as many chances as possible to, to hit on the proper one. Like it's great to hit on a couple of B plus ones, but it's better to better to strike out on, on three C minuses and get an A there. Um, before you kind of wrote this book, it, you know, just reading, you know, some of it, it seemed like you had a fairly kind of like somewhat of a, a fairly established relationship with, with Hinky. But what, what are some of the things you thought you learned about him and kind of either just how he operated on a day-to-day basis as a lead decision maker, things like that, that you didn't know prior to kind of initiating this, 
this process for you that you think is pretty interesting or kind of worthwhile for kind of just just in general i guess yeah i mean i've always liked the guy and he's always he's always been super pleasant in our interactions and i kind of previously had understood the people who were his detractors or people who you know characterized him as being this like evil villain behind the scenes is like not getting it but you know in fairness you know I definitely did learn some stories that I think he is kind of the bad guy in that regard and I think he you know as while it was strategic to try to eliminate the human element as much as possible. Like he didn't want to get to know Evan Turner. So that way it didn't influence him and in trying to get as much value for Evan Turner back. Right. Like Kyle Lowry is probably still in Toronto right now for a large portion of that reasoning, because the rappers want to do right by Kyle Lowry. And that's mm-hmm. not something Sam Hinkie would have at that time was willing to, you know, blind himself by, but that ended up, you know, costing a lot of relationships. And that played a big factor into why he's not working in the NBA today. And I think, you know, there's two sides of that coin. Like he is a genius by all accounts. And from my experience with him too, I mean, there's this great detail in the book where um, to fulfill some collegiate negotiating requirement, he ordered 50 pizzas to a packed lecture hall full, like literally over full. Every seat in the room was full. And in front of this whole packed house, he negotiated that stack of 50 pizzas for free from this poor delivery guy. And, you know, he swung incredible deals. The Drew Holiday deal was a great trade. The Darius Arch trade was a great trade. The Nick Stauskas deal, great trade. But I think the other side of that coin is when, when you recognize that you're one of the smartest people in, in the room, let alone the smartest, that definitely rubs people the wrong way. And I think there are stories like the Evan Turner thing or, you know, when they traded for Andre Karolinko in 2015, um, he told Billy King, who was the GM of the Nets at the time, that they were just going to waive him right away. And Karolinko's wife at the time was experiencing a really difficult pregnancy in New York and was like basically on her deathbed the same time she was on her pregnancy bed. And, you know, Philly ends up trying because, you know, Brett Brown was so excited about the idea of bringing in a veteran wing to like help his team. You know, Sam then starts to push for Andre to report to Philly and they start finding him knowing full well that his wife is having this difficult pregnancy. He doesn't want to uproot her to go to the worst team in the league. So that type of stuff, you know, I think was warranted, you know, when Andre Karolinko's agent starts to say that Sam's, you know, an untrustworthy guy, like you can imagine where that's coming from. So I think the most important thing I learned or the newest thing I learned in these reporting is that I do think he's a forward thinking, you know, brilliant guy who, you know, if you're Christian Wood or Joel Embiid, someone who was one of his guys, quote unquote, he treated you really special. And he, I think he is a really kind and caring, compassionate dude, but a lot of times I think he let the job blind him from those human elements. That's been a big theme of this conversation that we've had. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great kind of way to maybe circle all this together and tie this together. As you mentioned maybe at the start of this is that how, how much you like the, how much relationships are important in the NBA and having success as a front office guy or just having success as an, as an athlete in the NBA. Um, and that's, that's the, that's kind of how I always try to, as people talk to me or ask me about the process and whatnot, that's always a try to couch is that I think the way he built the team clearly put them in a great position to succeed. Like they had all these different picks and a bunch of great players and they were young and, and they fit well together, but there was certainly kind of a, a level of, 
dehumanization of certain athletes that does, yeah. just isn't sustainable. So like, even if, even if his model worked to the point he got it to, it did, it's not something that everyone else can put into practice because like, you have to maintain the relationships. Like you have to, you have to trust these guys. And you, have, you know, like if, if, uh, if a player comes through for six days and who knows, maybe, and he's, he was what the 12th guy on the bench, but maybe he's really close with this superstar as a free agent in three months. Like you're going to have to know that maybe that, per, that guy's going to ask like, Hey, what did you think of, what did you think of your time in Philadelphia with, with Hinky and whatnot? Like, and like, well, I was only around for a week, but he, he was really cold to me. Never really kind of embraced me. I always felt like I was just a transactional player. Um, that's the sort of thing that you have to make, make clear. And so that's how I think, you know, again, you have much more insight into it uh, about this, but that's how I have, how I viewed it the last couple of years that I've come to, you know, know more about these things and, and the value of the you know, human aspect, not value, but place greater human aspect of it is that, that, yeah, it was, he did a lot of really, really awesome decisions, but, um, there was kind of a, a lack of, lack of conscience always there, um, that, that kind of, you know, hurt, hurt him and was ultimately kind of what, one of the reasons he was, was ousted and, you know, it's no longer hasn't been a league for, for over half a decade now, but, um, anything you want to add to that, that sort of thing before we kind of wrap up here, any, any other anecdotes that you think are really interesting? I, you know, I want you to spoil the entire book, but like anything else do you want to add before maybe kind of conclude? Yeah, I think I think any good piece of reporting, you know, there's so much left on the cutting room floor. That's just that's just how it goes, right? You can't you can't include everything because if you do, you know, it just becomes so long and it it loses that punch. Um, I mean, my my favorite story, I think, um, from that didn't make it in the book. I, I wrote a lot of this stuff too, um, and I wrote I did a, a biweekly newsletter where I put a lot of deleted scenes. Um, but, I think one of the best stories overall is, you know, the Sixers ended up being this, you know, turnstile of 10 day contract guys. Right. And they all lived in this hotel down the street from the Sixers practice facility on city line Avenue at the time um, at Philadelphia college, osteopathic medicine. And like they had six, seven guys in, at hotel either on 10 days or on non-guaranteed deals and they would all you know carpool over to practice together sometimes and sam hinky used to leave um well, to the human element he used to leave gift, gift baskets for every player when they first got there like welcome them to philly on the personalized note like this is an opportunity for you you know we've been following your career like we like you blah blah blah, blah. um so to that regard like i, I think it was really cool to talk to a lot of the players from that Philly team who didn't get an opportunity, wouldn't have really gotten an opportunity to make the NBA without that chance. Like Tim Frazier went undrafted and was the MVP of the main red clause before Philly called him up. And there's this great story in the book of like the Springfield staff all had gone down to Boston to watch him make his debut against the Sixers. And like, he was locked out of the training facility and had to wear the shoes that Avery Bradley wore to the facility that night for his NBA debut. And like, he doesn't make it in Philly, but you know, Tim Frazier is still in the NBA right now. I think a lot of it because of the time that he had to showcase, you know, what he did in that six or starting role or someone like TJ McConnell, who like we talked about was always asking players, you know, do I need to make what I need to do to make this team? Like, do you think I've got a shot to even like Jakar Sampson who, you know, is in the NBA right now and kudos to him for, for getting back after a couple of years in the G league. Like he was someone who, you know, even he gets cut when the team trades um, makes that deal for Joel Anthony, when it was a three teamer with Houston and Detroit 
um, that people you know might, might forget about when the Pistons are trying to get Dantes Montiunis, and he fails that physical, and the deal doesn't go away, and Jakar Sampson's just on his ass, like out of the, he's cut, and I mean Denver scooped him up, but Philly couldn't get him back because the the waiver had already gone through, and that's just like just the kind of you know, these are just guys, these are people whose jobs are at stake, their livelihoods, their dreams are in the in the balance. Um, and you know, when that all happened, this is, this is in the book, the Sixers went and played at Detroit very, very shortly after that deal fell through and Carl Andrew was a veteran on that team. And, um, you know, the Sixers, if they didn't have enough, uh, cap money to get them to the apron, the minimum number that teams were supposed to spend on rosters at that point in time, you know, all every single player in that NBA team would have gotten a bonus. So the Sixers didn't want Joel Anthony because it would have pushed them, the Sixers players, it would have pushed them over that apron. So when they, when the, that deal first got nullified, all those players were going to get like $150,000 bonus, which for a TJ McConnell making 800 grand would have been huge. So they get to Detroit and they see Joel Anthony in layup lines and whatever and Carl Landry starts leading a chant on the bench, like, did we want Joel Anthony? And all the whole players are like, hell no. Did we want Joel Anthony? Hell no. Because guys like Ishmith and Nick Staskis and whatever they wanted, they little payday. So that's just like one funny detail, I think, that it kind of culminates all that type of stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think there's been a big theme throughout this, all these tidbits, but like, God, it's, it's a grueling business. The fact that, I mean, that they're, those guys making that much more money is dependent on this this guy's arrival and this poor guy just wants to find, find a new home and, and whatnot. And uh, so, yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great antidote, but yeah, you just, you just, it's another like, an emphasis, another episode of, of the NBA being a, being a brutal business, unfortunately for a lot of these players. And, and, you know, it's not Joel's fault or Joel Anthony's fault. We've talked about Joel beat, of course, don't want to use just one Joel there, not Anthony, Joel Anthony's fault, but it's just tough, tough business. Uh, unfortunately, you kind of, you empathize with both sides of, of that. Um, but Jake, really appreciate you coming on. I, a bunch of great stories and insights. I hope everyone listening, this was a nice change of pace from, you know, Ben Simmons trade talks or reviews of, of, of Sixers players. Um, <laughs> the floor is yours for a little bit here. Again, anything you want to plug, anything, where can people find you working? What's the best way to kind of find your work and, and buy your book, uh, of course. Yeah. You know, thank you again for the platform, the opportunity, man. Um, yeah, if you can, if like we talked about here, there's, there's a ton more in the book. I mean, I've got stories like Brett Brown teaching Del Demps how to swim at the Spurs practice facility in the lap pool there, um, which is another favorite of mine. There's so much in there from all the original interviews I did. Um, there, there, there's there's new reporting on every page. So if you, if you, if you want to support, it's available on Amazon, bookshop.org, Triumph Books, my publisher, Barnes & Noble. Um, anywhere books are sold pretty much. I've got a partnership with a watch company called La Tourine, L-A-T-O-U-R-A-I-N-E. Um, you got a promo code built to lose. You get a free book with a watch purchase. So <laughs> that's something fun. But yeah, uh, this, you know, I, I think the original details and the new reporting and storytelling in there is something that anyone on NBA Twitter is going to love. And obviously there's no button NBA Twitter loves more than Jackson Frank right now. So <laughs> Jackson Frank has, has given it a stamp of approval. So buy the book guys. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, Jake, for everyone listening. Uh, please buy the book, please review the podcast, download it, subscribe, listen, wherever you find your podcast. Uh, again, we continue to try to find uh, new fun ways to cover the Sixers as uh, we're getting kind of a little bit of a, uh, purgatory almost in between the season and the draft and whatnot, but uh, you can find all your Sixers stuff here. Um, until next time, uh, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I'll talk to all of you again soon.